this ability to constantly, whether you want to call it adapt and evolve, what that takes is, is you've got to feel real secure about the environment you're in, okay? Money doesn't make you feel secure. Feeling secure is about emotional feelings. Ed Hess is a top authority on organizational and human high performance. His studies focus on growth, innovation and learning, systems and processes, and servant leadership. In other words, he's like a Yoda of high performance and organizational culture. If you're interested in the connectivity of positivity and culture or the speed of learning with the ever-growing pace of technology, or to just listen to an expert at one of the leading business education schools in the world, then this episode is for you. Ed is a down-to-earth, brilliant teacher and author who has led an extraordinary life. It started in humble beginnings and was changed forever by the kindness of the most unexpected people in his community. Get ready to hear Ed's story on this episode of Design Of, where we talk about the extraordinary things that happen around us every day and the people behind them. I'm your host, Justin Ahrens, and we start Ed's story in the rural South. Enjoy the show. I was raised in rural Georgia, and um, my father was an immigrant from Germany. He was uh, a survivor of the Holocaust. My mother was from Boston, Massachusetts, so basically we were immigrants into rural western Georgia, and um, outsiders, and um, the days of the KKK and all of that stuff, we were very, uh, had many incidences. Uh, that were scary and everything, and uh, in the in the rural in the South, as you know, football is king, mm-hmm. and and um, we had the best football coach in the state of Georgia, and so my high school football coach, when I was in the seventh grade, I was not an uh, an athlete, reached out to me and said, "Would you like to be an athletic trainer?" I never met him, he never talked to me, and I said, what is that? Well, I'll teach you to tape, tape ankles, and you'll uh, you know, work with the, the players on the heating pads, all this stuff. I said, that sounds cool. He said, well, I'd like for you to come to my house on the first day of school at 7.30 a.m., and you're going to ride to school with me. I said, okay, coach, all right. And he said, you're going to ride to school with me every day. And so... I rode to school every day with the coach, and what that said in our community was, in effect, God with a little g blesses these people, leave them alone. Mm-hmm. And life changed for me and changed for all my family. And uh, so he was a huge influence, and, uh, and I became very good at what I was doing, and he uh, helped me publish my first article when I was a senior in high school in Coach and Athlete magazine, which was the big magazine on what an athletic trainer in high school should do. And that got me a full scholarship uh, to become an athletic trainer at, uh, uh, in, at a major university, the University of Florida, and uh, which then I became a, a data analyst. But so I was I was fortunate to basically have people see something in me which got me into environments where I could excel. And so my life has been one of 
being in environments which I was not trained to be. All right, uh, I was uh, uh, I was my graduate degree was in law, and and then I went into the investment banking business, and uh, at a very very senior level, and I didn't know how to do an IRR. What is an IRR? You might be wondering. Well, I wondered the same thing, to be honest with you. In its most general terms, it is a metric used in financial analysis to estimate the profitability of potential investments. There you go, IRR. The chairman who hired me um, um, was a, a senior partner in law firm that I worked for, and he became chairman of this big international banking firm. And he said, I want to make you in charge of all IPOs, private equity, this, this, and this. And I looked at him and said, you know, I don't know how to do an IRR. He says, I know that, but I know you'll learn. And the way he knows I will learn when I work for him, I was the person he chose to basically put into the unknown and go figure it out. And so I was the person that went to Puerto Rico and went to the mountains and stayed a week with the women in the factories learning how to make brassiers and bras for a specific purpose. I was the person that went, you know, back to Puerto Rico in another factory and learned how to make false teeth because I was... I was something was inside of me that I was always open to exploring and learning and I wasn't fearful and I enjoyed it. Ed is an amazing example of having an open-minded or growth mindset mentality and he makes the most of whatever enters his life. You can do the same if you're open to it. My journey has been a learning journey and being put into situations uh, and when I went to academia, I wasn't trained as an academic. I was a business person. And when I went to academia, same thing happened. People saw something in me and really helped me. And, uh, uh, and so how did I get here? It was a, uh, I've had three different careers, but they're all sort of hung together with people in my work, I talk about inner peace and otherness. Otherness is re was real big in my life. People helped me along the way. And therefore, as I grew, I said, I have a duty to help others along the way. And I was um, uh, enthralled, if you will. I'm not a professional like you are in your field, but going in you know, challenges. I just, I was never fearful. Uh, I never ruminated if something didn't work. I spent time figuring out what could we learn, what did we do, and I wasn't taught that. And so there was something there, and so I'm a I'm a weird bird. Okay, I'm um, uh, I'm not a I'm not a traditional anything. Although I've been in three three different careers. So well, I don't know if that gives, I don't know if that gives you a feel or not. Oh, you know, it's a that's amazing, and, and it opens up a, a, a bunch of uh, interesting, you know, questions. Uh, and the, the one of the main ones here was, it feels like a lot of what you're talking about was innate. It, you were, you just were born with it um, uh, at some level. And I know, you know, we'll talk a little bit about inner peace and, and, and the practice of, you know, self-awareness and that sort of thing. I, I know that is a big, area for you but how does that how would you describe the fact that some of the things you talked about 
throughout your career of of you know just going after it without fear. Um, do you agree with the fact that you just um, innately had that? Um, I don't. I don't. I don't know whether I innately had it. I think I was probably learned it from my father. Hmm. Okay, because I was you know with him at times where uh, he. Uh, was extremely courageous and not and, and fearless and uh, uh, in situations that were highly uh, tense and could have been explosive and I uh, he never raised his voice and he said what he would do and not do and he made you know and he and so I think it was I think it was I think it was more my upbringing in the role model, all right, that the, the role model of uh, how to how to be. And then I think the coach, my coach, my high school coach, uh, taking me in, in effect, being like a, a big brother to me for four years and spending lots of time with him. He was, uh, I think, constantly constantly giving me opportunities to go explore this and to do something and uh, uh, to you know to learn baseball and I became the first base coach and he was the third base coach when we were on the field and you know it was this so I think it was experiences experiences and role models much more than innate those models they, for they, you and then you were giving and then you were given access to situations uh, is is that a fair and, framework yes and 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 they were my heroes and emulating my heroes mm. so I was very fortunate if you will to have heroes who were um, very unique human beings and very uh, compassionate and not all about themselves that um, they were and, and were very um, values-based, very humanistic, uh, very uh, um, trying to helping all people of all colors and all backgrounds in a time in the South when that was not, you know, done. Yeah, then no, that's extraordinary. Did you, were you able to, you know, when later in life to go back and, and um, thank that coach? Yes, I, uh, I, I, many, I went back. The answer is yes, and and, and his children today I still are in contact mm. with. All right, and uh, but the, you know, I have a few regrets in my life, and the biggest regret in my life is is that when I was the, when I was on Wall Street. I was I went through a stage where I wanted to be successful and uh, I took care of my people that reported to me I wasn't I didn't uh, I was positive towards them but I was a workaholic and my biggest regret in life is is that uh, when my coach died I was quote too busy on Wall Street to basically fly back for the funeral and that's the biggest regret I have in my life Thank you for sharing that. I had a sixth grade teacher that looking back on my life, he he literally saved my life. 
and I was in a situation that wasn't um, healthy and he saw that he didn't know what it was but he saw that and uh, 30 some years later I reached out to him and said thank you and he started crying and all the years of teaching no one ever said thank you to him before and Ed you know it was beautiful I wasn't I'm, I'm wasn't uh, an an artist as a child I mean I still am but as a child, I, I worked through a lot of the trauma that I was dealing with through, you know, creating visuals. And everything I created for class, he kept and sent it to me. It was beautiful. Wow. Wow. And about five years ago, I was able to go down um, and see him in Tucson and say thank you. Uh, it was really... That's wonderful. It was really um, special. And and uh, you're you're motivating me to reconnect with him. I haven't talked to him in a few years. I, I, I've been thinking about him during COVID and, and wanting to check in on him. So I'm telling you right now, I'm going to do that in, in honor right. of, of our sharing that story. Well, I thank you for that because I, you know, you can see a pattern in your life where you have, although that is a regret and, and I'm grateful for you sharing that. And I understand that. But you, uh, part of the reason you went uh, to academia, um, I'd be willing to bet is some of the influences of the coach and people in your life and you wanted to give back. That's right. Yeah. I started teaching at uh, Guzetta Business School at Emory when I still was in the real world. And um, I really, really enjoyed it. And then they came and said, why don't you just come and do this full time? And, um, and, and I was very fortunate then. I had a dean, a great dean, uh, Tom Robertson, who uh, came to Emory from Wharton and uh, then went to uh, Cambridge and was dean at Cambridge and then back to Wharton as is, is a dean. And, I, and uh, Tom said, look, I know you're not a traditional academic, but I know what you want to do and what you can do. I got your back. Hmm. Don't worry about what the academics say. And, you know, and it's just, an, you know, and in, in, uh, in and you know he allowed me to build a leadership program and he allowed me to basically take my work into um, uh, pos positivity and basically the transformation of organizations and, and, and other faculty then joined in to support me uh, at that point in time so I had huge support and huge data analysis um, uh, support for my data for my research and so the same way yes i wanted i wanted to give back and i wanted to and i and i started out then as all of my work was on basically uh if you will high performance organizations and taking on wall street about quarterly earnings and then the the work on the type of leadership model uh that basically enables the highest levels of human performance and all of that started at uh, at emory and um and, but again, it wouldn't have happened without support of people, mm. support of people. No, that's great. Well, <clears throat> let's shift to uh, your current book. And I would love to, um, you know, your book, Hyperlearning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change. Um, can you frame up what is the concept of hyperlearning and why is it and why do you feel it's important today? Well, I mean, te technology is going to, is and is going to transform how we work, how we live, and who works. 
and human beings are going to basically have meaningful work if they can add value in ways that technology can't and those ways are pretty limited it's you know higher order higher order thinking all right critical thinking creative thinking going into the unknown exploring making judgments when that when you don't have a lot of data and then emotionally connecting and relating with other human beings uh, because most work in the digital age is going to be done in teams and the effectiveness of teams is highly dependent on the magnitude of the collective intelligence since that's highly dependent upon the e emotional uh, relationships that team members have with each other and um, so hyper learning is being able to learn at the speed of change and technology is going to basically it has and it will continue to increase the pace of change in the business world in the work world basically and technology will become smarter and smarter and it's you know probably the best minds out there say by 2030 there's no cognitive task technology won't be able to do better than human beings uh, and I've always had my big foothold on the emotion side because I thought that that was going to be the key differentiator between humans and the technology but the te the work on the emotional side of um, from a technological viewpoint is advancing at a rate that is unbelievable and it's clear that technology is going to be able to recognize sense and respond emotionally to human beings going forward and that's coming much quicker than i ever thought and it's yeah, already and I, yeah it's it's here right so um yeah. it, it it feels especially the last 500 some days it felt like things were changing daily and there was levels of uncertainty and, and and i know that it's a little bit of a an extra layer to what you're talking about but you know you you read articles today about you know ai and and uh you have um people in in sort of two camps one that are like you, you know sort of the um uh computers are going to take over the world right to others that are saying hey this is an opportunity for us um as humans to connect at actually a deeper uh more empathetic uh, more creative level and i think i know which camp you're in but uh how, how would where do you sit in that spectrum yeah no i i think i approach it this way the the future of humanity, I want to believe, is going to be a future with humanity, all right? And I don't think, I mean, we're going to have extremely challenging times. Uh, the United States as a culture and as a bus business model is at a distinct disadvantage to the rest of the world as far as adapting our system. Uh, if you will, to a humanistic system uh, with a social safety net, etc., and a environment uh, that uh, that uh, is going to be necessary going forward. So, so do I think that could it be? I don't know, 50 years, 75 years from now, humanity, you know, we be we're morphed. I, I have written about that basically 
uh, techno homo sapiens is probably the next evolutionary move where technology is embedded in our bodies of various kinds and I think that will come but I think that uh, do I is there a possibility that that technology by itself will basically rule the world in a hundred years I don't know but I think at least in the near future all right in the near future human beings are going to be uh, integral to how this all plays out and it's very complicated because we we as a country are we as a country are not in a place currently to allow us to optimize our movement in the direction we need to go and um, and the the AI quote competition or war all right between China and the United States is going to be is, is is going to impact the world greatly because of China's Silk Road project and all of the trillions of dollars they're investing into the building the technology systems in Africa and certain parts of the Middle East and in India and now in South America so if data who has the most data is is going to determine who sort of wins it's looking pretty bad if you will for the Western world I mean the Western world is say we call traditional at, at this point in time and so so where's it all gonna come out you know I believe there will be a human component for you know, let's just say a long time the challenge is what kind of life will people have and what type of environment will they live in uh, and will it be an environment that is sustainable with enough people having a happy, meaningful life. That's the challenge that we have as a country. Mm. That's the challenge we have. And we are we are nowhere near being able to have those types of conversations at the current time. Sure. Well, let's go back to the elements uh, that I think uh, could help us get there, or at least uh, give this opportunity to hyper-learn, right? So you, you you know, frame up um, some core elements um, that need to be present uh, for hyper learning. And uh, why do you, you know, what are those, you know, uh, why did you choose those elements or why do you think those are key? And, uh, you know, what are some simple ways uh, for people to, um, you know, start to be open to uh, applying those to their lives? Well, the, the model is science-based, so it was it's all all based in science, and it's the you know uh, the whole and it's also based in uh, the Eastern and Western philosophies, which go back three thousand years, as to basically mastery of self, and the part on inner peace is basically saying that that the highest level of human engagement and human thinking occurs best when human beings are able to manage what's going on in their body and uh, and that science is is there now that impacts learning but it also impacts happiness it also impacts meaning all right it's 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 if, if you will so that uh, you know the behavioral approach 
uh, which I take in the book with defining uh, picking key behaviors and then uh, the methodology of defining those behaviors and what observable behaviors evidence the desired behavior, what observable behaviors evidence the lack of desire, and the behavioral change process that is in the book as to how to embrace those behaviors and actually improve and do that. That's based in science, all right, and that goes, I mean, that's based in primarily in, in cognitive science, uh, and that goes back to um, you know the work that began for me 40 years ago and when I was in my cognitive P uh, psychology PhD program and uh, and the um, and working and there was another case where a person took me under his wings and he was one of the leading cognitive scientists in in the country at that time and one of his young professors was uh, Anders Ericsson uh, who was Mr. 10,000 hours about deliberate practice. Mm -hmm. So all of that, all of that comes um, the, the personal side of it. Um, and then when you get to the organizational side, uh, the area of positive psychology is where most of the science there comes from, if you will, from a, uh, the emotional connection part, the being able to listen part, uh, but as, in, as importantly, how to emotionally in um, fact manage your emotions so it's all science-based and the, the model it builds upon the models that I started out with 19 years ago. I started the research 19 years ago and what do high-performance organizations look like and there's seven eight characteristics of high-performance organizations and that's that's that has maintained itself up until today and being able to behave in those ways takes someone coming to work in the right state of being and then the cultural environment which I have focused on the last 19 years what type of culture uh, so the cultural model all comes from my research other people's research uh, but also from applied experience I've had in companies so the model, the hyperlearning journal model, and I don't know whether you you looked on the website and saw the, the there is a journey model mm -hmm. which takes everybody yep. through. Every 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 one of the buckets, you know, all the way to the recent big aha that's come out of the research in uh, the last ten years on the emotional side is the power of collective intelligence, and how does collective intelligence occur in, in teams? and the overwhelming research evidence which states that in general uh, women are much better collaborators than men and the reasons why for that and so all of that sort of fits in the model is science-based it's very behavioral which is behavioral more than a lot of models uh, and it's very if you will uh, building blocks oriented. All right. Yeah, and, and I think the oriented. yeah, and I think the journey. Uh, and I'll put the graphic in our show notes. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Two things I want to kind of uh, push on a little bit is, you know, today there's no sh shortage of people talking about uh, 
to be self-aware. You can choose how you show up, the power of positivity, and you have some people roll roll their eyes, right? So, uh, one of the things that we talk about here uh, is wanting to create a space, a safe space, a culture where people feel seen um, and heard and safe. And uh, from a lot of the research we've done and even some of the clients that we work on that actually specialize in positivity, they talk about that as a bedrock for that to show up. So from your experience, uh, does positivity really make that much of an impact? Positivity makes an impact if it is behaviorally enabled and occurs. It comes down to behaviors. All right. What what behaviors will basically enable the desired result which you want in your company? And you know, and I, I list of you know what have what have I got? Uh, maybe 15, 16 behaviors that are key in this era of hyper learning or new smart, etc. And it all comes down to how people behave. It doesn't come down to what's to themes or it doesn't come down to policies. It comes down comes down to how Justin behaves. And if you want to create a positive work environment what behaviors do you need to evidence and what behaviors do your teams need to evidence and people need to basically then go have a process where they learn how to do those behaviors and they measure them i have i have public companies that are working on behaviors and every meeting they measure how people did on the behaviors in that mm. meeting And some of those behaviors would be like, are you talking about like humility, compassion, open-mindedness, mindfulness, curiosity? Yeah, yeah, courage. Mm -hmm. Courage, resilience, uh, uh, reflective listening. Listening is huge, huge. Uh, And so how would a a person who's a good listener behave? How How would you know that I'm listening to you? How would I know you're listening to me? Do I observe? I have the I have the pr- uh, president of a huge company right now uh, that I'm coaching on. Basically, how to have high quality conversations in his team meetings, and what is the behaviors that he's working on, and and I require him to basically make a list of his behaviors and share it with all his team. In every meeting, they have a sheet, and they're basically saying yes, no, yes, no, writing it down and getting up feedback for it. Hmm. That's how basically behavior change occurs. That's how behavior acquisition, if it's a new behavior, goes. Yeah. So what what makes my work unique from a lot of other good work is is this behavioral detailed accountability focus well it sounds like what's interesting yeah what, what sounds like it's interesting from a leader standpoint is if you have his teammates or the ones he's managing co-workers all of the above assessing his behaviors not only is he getting feedback but they're also learning 
the value of those behaviors, right? Because theoretically they're being modeled or not modeled for them. Um, so that seems like a really great ripple effect. Is that part of the process? And part of the process is not that, not that it'd be left to hope and, and, and crossed fingers that in the companies I work with, the chosen behaviors are worked on by every employee in the company. Mm. Everybody, no matter what level. Okay, so if you want humility is a core concept, what's the six or seven observable behaviors which tell you someone's humble on six or seven not? And everybody is striving to basically improve their humility. They're striving to be a better listener. Mm. They're striving, if you will, to uh, uh, have more empathy and compassion for other people. Um, and so, so it's a, it's a, it's a, you can't change an organization by only changing a leader's behaviors leaders behavior is role modeling the behavior that you want the people also to adopt and so you need a system where you're measuring the adaptation of that otherwise you won't get the highest quality engagement it, it uh, when the leader's not present i love Does it that makes sense oh absolutely uh one of our uh clients and dear friend of mine studied positive psychology um, with Chris Peterson, Dr. Chris Peterson, University of Michigan. And one of the frameworks he has is there's basically 24 character traits. Um, strength test. Yeah. Yeah. Present in, in the positivity. So I'm, I'm curious when you look at, when you go to these organizations that you coach and help frame up ways for them to, um, you know, have these behaviors more present, which I, I, I'm making the assumption these, if these behaviors are more present, then that increases their, um, uh, their, their satisfaction, job satisfaction. Um, they are higher performers, better communication, et cetera. Um, how do you, how do you help them determine which ones to focus on or, or is that something that they come to you with, or do you help them kind of navigate, uh, those that are maybe most missing or, or that they want to build their culture around? Most companies that I've worked with, the story goes sort of like this. People reach out to me for a reason. That reason generally is either fear-based or legacy-based. All right, at a CEO level or a president's level. And where I start out with is what do you want to accomplish? And what's the strategic objective? Why are you willing to invest the time in this? What is the strategic objective? And they'll have a strategic objective. And then what is what's the necessary change you need in your workforce in order to achieve that strategic objective? this is what we need more of all right we need more courage to go experiment to go do innovation to try things okay so you really want more innovation 
and therefore what behaviors enable innovation. And innovation is a team sport. And then we work through and we go through a list of probably I have 15, 16 behaviors and say, which ones do you think are important? And then we get the senior leadership team together and we rank them all and we talk about them. And then we go through the process of which ones do they think are important in their environment. Mm. And so they choose their behaviors. And then we and then we go through the process of defining those behaviors. Six, seven observable. Six or seven's the max, not twenty-five, mm. not seventeen or eighteen. That's the max that 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 I found the organization. More than that, I love Peterson's work and Seligman's work, I love it all. Uh, but, you know, 25 strengths, it's a overwhelming. Lot. Yeah. You know, I've been very fortunate to have worked with and to have become friends with some great business builders. Horace Schulte at Ritz Carlton, the late Herb Kelleher at Southwest Air. And you talk with these people that have built these businesses. I mean, Herb, Herb Kelleher, uh, I never forget the. Sorry about the war story, but I'm making a point. No, it's great. Uh, was, was was in his uh, visiting with him, and I was on some work I was doing with him in, in Dallas in their headquarters, and he has an office which has no windows, and, and we were we spent a morning, and then he says, uh, he's, and I said, all right, well, good, you're in a good shape, you're in good shape. And he says, he says your car's downstairs, and he's taking me to a plane. Of course, it's Southwest airplane, and uh, which is good, and he says, I'll walk with you. And so I says, that's all right, Herb, you're busy. He says, no, I'll walk with you. And he says, and we're going, we're, we're going to walk through a couple of floors. So we basically go downstairs and open up door and go into a floor. And he's walking around. And every person he came close to stood up, came over to him. He recognized them by their first name, asked something about the kids. And I saw Herb in walking those two floors get more hugs and more kisses on the cheek by women, basically, but no, platonic, no, no stuff. Yeah. And I said to him, Herb, what in the hell is going on here? <laughs> he said, Ed, he says, we're the love airline. And I mean, he built the company and his performance of his airline was, as you know, off the charts and still remains off the charts because his goal was to create an environment where everybody was cared about, had opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. And so, same thing with Horst Schulte, ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. Every employee at a Ritz-Carlton hotel when he was running them had the authority without asking anyone to use $2,000 to make a customer happy. Mm. I said, Horst, how in the hell can you trust people to, do, to just give away $2,000? Uh, how's this going to work? He said to me, he said, and he said, do you know what the net present value of a Ritz-Carlton customer is in dollars? I said, no. He says, $102,000. If my bus, bus boy or my waiter wants to spend $2,000 to keep a customer happy, and that's a customer that's long-term, would I invest $2,000 to make $102,000? I said, yeah. He says, okay, now you understand the, the system. Mm. And, um, um, and so... These, you know, 
and, and so there is a there is a consistency here that these people these very few the small number of people now you can have a great company and follow a different model okay many of the tech companies have done that all right they generally hit a wall at some point and you find then the next not the founders but the people that basically take over from the founders are extremely humanistic people talking like I'm talking and you're talking. Microsoft's a perfect example. All right? Microsoft's a perfect example. Uh, Apple's a perfect example. Okay? Um, and so it, it comes down to who's going to create the environment where when it really gets to become difficult and complex with technology, that people are going to be quiet inside, not fearful, not competitive with each other, where is a team they can go optimize learning, exploring, discovery, whatever, conversations. I mean, the biggest strategic differentiator going forward in big public companies is the quality of the conversations that occur in the company. Without high quality making meaning conversations, true conversations, people are going to lose. You know, I, I look at your, you know, your roadmap and, and it leads to uh, meaningful relationships, right? Uh, a sense of belonging. And uh, I think whether we know it or not, that's what we all desire. That's right. That's right. And, you know, going circling back to our, you know, sort of gloom and doom uh, AI technology conversation, I think that's really what makes us different is those relationships. Um, that's right. Would you agree with that? And that's yes, and and those relationships are the pathway to happiness and meaning. Mm. I mean, I mean, what's what's coming together is is that you can take all the happiness research, and now there's well-being research. Okay, you can take the learning research you can take if you will the cultural research but it's all coming back to what you just said all of it says that thank you i'm just reading your amazing work so i appreciate that uh i could a little bit because i you know when we started this conversation you know so i'm in my 21st year of my organization you know i went to uh, school for something completely different than what i'm doing now if you would have told me, I don't even think I knew what entrepreneur meant, you know, 22 years ago. I, I don't think that was something that was even in my, you know, understanding of what I could do. And so I didn't go to school necessarily. I, didn't, I don't have a, you know, business administration or MBA or, or, you know, whatever credentials that one would think you would need to run an organization. But one thing that I'm very grateful for that I think was modeled for me um, like you had things model for you was uh, a desire to truly care for those around me. And I've wanted to continue to learn and explore what that means. And you said something very interesting earlier, which is um, when you're on Wall Street, you know, your ego is leading versus Ed's heart. Is that an accurate statement? Yes, with this sort of twist on it. I was 
always kind and took care of my people. All right, I got them promotions. I got them. I got them transfers if they wanted to go somewhere else. I paid for their colleges, but I never had time to engage with them as a human to human in a conversation. My mm. rule was no chit chat. Let's get down to business, and I mm. took care of them. And so I was humanistic towards them, and they they and I treated them better than most of my colleagues treated people working for them but I was not emotionally engaged with them all right and I mean the fact of the matter at that time in my life I wasn't emotionally engaged in my marriage or with my children all right and that you know that was a big wall that I hit and uh, that sort of changed me that wall but so but yes you're you're exactly right that this caring I mean that's that's why caring trusting teens or I have the chapter of caring trusting teens and it was important okay I could have said trusting caring teens no caring trusting teens and you know why I put caring first because you live caring all right uh, and that's that's going to be in the volatile world where things are changing and what you're working on today you may not be working on three months ago and what you're working on last year that was successful is going to basically be completely not needed now and so this this ability to constantly whether you want to call it adapt and evolve what that takes is is you've got to feel real secure about the environment you're in Okay, money doesn't make you feel secure. Feeling secure is about emotional feelings. And okay, Justin cares for me. I know he cares for me. Okay, that's good. Okay, he's not gonna hurt me. No, he's not gonna make me look bad in front of my colleagues. No. Okay, I can try these things and we're all gonna be in this together. Yeah. It gets down to that granularity. You're, so you're spot on. Well, <clears throat> thank you for that. I, I think like you, um, and I think the your graphic of a journey is so apt, right? Or so spot on. Um, I think I wouldn't have wanted to work for me probably 20 years ago. <laughs> and though I, like you, I, I, I believe I, I was kind and, and, um, and relatively present, but not, uh, the way I think I am now <clears throat> primarily because I've changed. Um, I'm doing the work on myself and, and, and Ed, I really appreciate the way you've mapped out that journey, um, for anyone who is a leader, um, uh, you know, um, teammate, you know, um, et cetera, that to have these meaningful relationships, it isn't, um, purely what the organization is going to do for you. It's, uh, it starts largely with what, how you're going to show up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's how do you, how, how, how you come to the, to the table, but how you show up and going back to one of your previous questions and the environment in the workplace, the culture in the workplace is critical. And as I learned in the real world, I remember someone telling me, you know, culture is only as good as your last meeting with your manager. 
all right it's 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 that volatile okay and so it gets to be in like you have your organization and you know it's i don't know how, how big it is but it's you know it's uh, i don't expect it's a thousand people it's probably a size that you still can have impact in and manage and make sure that your your culture which is your philosophy and your way of you wanting to be and enabling people to to be the best they can be um, you you can see that and uh, on a daily basis and etc and then it, it comes then it comes down to the fact of, of then once you build once you build that emotional base okay learning new s skills using technology is is child's play all right it's it's the and, and it's but it's maintaining that culture because people are extremely fragile it doesn't take a lot I mean people can have a great culture for years people can be treated well for years it doesn't take a lot for somebody to that our 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 emotional part of us is not wired to say and I'm just role-playing now yep. okay wow Justin just made me look bad oh man I feel really bad wait a minute now let's count up how long have I been here I've worked <laughs> with Justin for nine years well how many days is that how many days has he made you look bad we don't take the time and say this is an aberration something must be going on with Justin I'm gonna to talk to him about it we immediately go oh my god all right we start going the fight or flight the whole bit that's the way our system is wired and so it's it's that rigor in dailiness which is so important for all the team but also when there are blips embracing the blips and dealing with them head-on and and getting as fast as one can back to the place people were and that's where busy busy people sometimes let things slide like that and they then just fester because you know if if we're just role playing here yep if, if i'm if i'm working for you and and you know something you, you know just for whatever reason you do something which sets me off it's one thing if you notice it in like uh, many of the companies i work with they adopt a, a, a check-in check-out where are people check out okay one minute each person where where's your head where's your heart how are you doing and then if somebody says I'm, I'm okay well that's the answer they're not doing that well all right if you go tomorrow and talk to that person that is send a message for a day that wasn't that important to you mm. you go as soon as you can that day and the shorter the time the better that says and you say well you, you said you're, you're just sort of okay uh, is there is there you know, something that happened did I do something that, that that you know offended you or that you were concerned about please I'm here I'm, I'm here to make to make amends to let's talk this through the faster that happens in an organization the faster the, the rebound is the longer it takes for those things that's why that's why quote annual reviews semi-annual reviews quarterly reviews 
they can be reviews on if you I will call it the objectives how many things we shipped or what was our revenue but on the emotional daily views that stuff has to be daily that's great well I, I know we're getting uh, to the end of our time here Ed and, and I don't I want to respect that uh, man my man I could <laughs> you may not want to but I could talk to you for the whole day uh, there's so many things here that uh, for me personally, is um, really fascinating, and I, I th- uh, and I think quite honestly, uh, uh, ways that I can personally self-improve myself, but also how I impact you know my marriage and my friendship and my my teammates um, at work. I guess my my final um, uh, question to you would be, you know, in general, when you're talking to leaders, um, you know, I, we have a lot of uh, clients who who often will have, you know, sort of a mantra or you know some core um, things that they'll always want to make sure they they share or impart with uh, the people they work with. Um, if if you, if I was uh, able to, you know, um, if you were mentoring me or coaching me, um, what would be um, just in general? What would be one of the main things you'd want me to remember as a leader as I sign off on this podcast and go? start my day with my team. What are some of the, what are some of the things that you think are just critical for daily uh, showing up? Well, I think a lot of that is in the roadmap. All right. How you, how you come to work. I, I think being fully present in the moment. And I think being a really listening to people. And I think the power of smiles, the power of smiles Hmm. and because and taking the time to connect. And I, and I would say to a leader, a leader, no, you know what you're good at doing. You know what you need to work on. And I'm a big believer on daily intentions, having a checklist that you read every morning that, you know, uh, you know, mine starts out, be kind, be caring. Be present, you know, and I've got like 10, 12 things that I read every morning and I visualize myself doing it every morning. And you start out with your daily intentions and at the end of the day, you run through your day and you say, okay, was I here where I was and where did I basically make an error and how do I make amends? And so I think you sort of visualize and and have your list of daily intentions, which are behaviors, okay? Uh, some simple behaviors like I said and uh, and you even if you, your motor gets revved up and you go on meeting to meeting take basically take two two minutes and just be by yourself and just be still and silent calm yourself where you go in and that you're totally calm when you go in and so it. then you can allow that you're 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 not you're not you, the, the key thing is the highest performance does not come from when the engine is racing. Thank you, Ed, for taking the time to pay your kindness, wisdom, and desire to help others forward. I look forward to our next conversation. And for more on Ed, his books, and to check out the roadmap, go to edhess.org, E-D-H-E-S-S.org.
I would also like to thank Sleeping at Last for providing our show's soundtrack, now in its seventh season. For more on Ryan from Sleeping at Last and his music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping at Last wherever you get your music from. To design of audio engineer Steve Wick, who was a little freaked out by Ed Hess's prediction of AI's takeover. No! You're going to kill that guy! Of course, I'm a Terminator. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Tell others about our show and stay tuned for the next episode. Please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash design of podcast. See you next episode.